Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is uh, with Tiffany Stevenson. I'm back in Australia after my time in London, but while I was there I uh, recorded a couple of podcasts, including this one and next week's one with John Robertson. But this is with Tiff Stevenson, who's a great London-based act. Look her up, follow her on Twitter. She's a cool person. We had quite a long discussion uh, mainly about uh, being women in comedy, which I tend not tend not to want to do that conversation too many times, but she had some really good, strong, interesting and varied opinions. Uh, If that's not your cup of tea, uh, maybe wait for next week's Tea with Alice. But uh, I certainly found what she had to say interesting. I hope you do too. Until next week, uh, or if you're in Perth, come see my shows. Uh, Until next week, I'll see you guys later. Bye. Thing, like difficult things that take more than one step to explain. Right, okay. I think those are the things that comedians do incredibly well. Yeah, and we're being constricted by a uh, by sound form. bite. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Where people take you out of context, and so kind of the premise, or well, all my listeners know that you don't take anything out of context. Okay, well, um, there's some quite interesting ideas. I just wrote a. A piece for the Metro newspaper here. Oh, that's my phone ringing. I should turn that off. That's um, uh, which was all about um, how, um, which kind of fits into this, more fits in with the theme of what you're doing rather than a subject on its own. Mm. But I think, have a think about that. Um, so the head of medicine here... Uh, chap called Dr Clifford Mann. That's a great name. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's the most English. Dr Clifford Mann. It sounds like he should be in a Bond film or something. Cliff Mann. Cliff Mann. Bear yeah. Grylls. Like, <laughs> yeah. good. They're outdoorsy. One does abseiling oh, and one wrestles uh, with animals. Um, yeah, so he's uh, the head of medicine and he recently called for the police here to be able to have more powers to arrest drunk people. Now, not drunk and disorderly, just drunk people, right? And the logic behind it, which I can see, although ultimately it's flawed, the logic behind it is to stop them ending up in A&E, so hurting themselves, hurting someone else, so they get in before. But as far as I'm aware, being drunk isn't a crime. So now we're talking about arresting people or the power to arrest people before they've actually committed a crime. Just because they're statistically likelier to yeah, commit a crime. Yeah, That's or as they call it in Minority Report, pre-crime. Mm. So, I don't know if you've seen that film. Yeah, yeah, I have. It's interesting because I did criminology um, as one of my electives and it is, like, there are certain environments and spaces and and things that make people more likely to commit crimes. Not, like, their upbringing or anything, but, like, a kind of a room will make somebody more likely to commit a certain kind of crime. Right. So, in, uh, lots of lots of factors surrounding it. So, the idea is is that our health service here is so stretched that that would take a lot of the pressure off, especially just after New Year's with the amount of drunk people coming into A&E. So that's the logic. But, um, you know, how far do you take this idea? At what point is it a crime? You know, is it when you've got a brick in your hand and you're about to throw it through a window? Or is it when you're looking at a brick? Is it when you're thinking of a brick? You know, how far do you take it? Do you arrest someone for, uh, you know, being drunk and wanting to call their ex? It's for your own good. Yeah. She doesn't want to hear how you've been working out. And how you're totally over her. Whatever, you know, we can... So so there's an idea there of, of 
uh, trying to arrest people before a thing has actually happened. Now, this is increasingly creeping into comedy at the moment. That's quite a rich topic. It's quite a rich uh, vein because we had an announcement recently about a sitcom that was being written. Hasn't been made yet. Hasn't even been written. There's just been a commission for a script for Channel 4 and the script is based around or set during the Irish potato famine. Uh-huh. So, getting into the pre-crime area again, right? Everyone's like, it's going to be offensive. People have gone absolutely batshit. So, something like 30,000 people signed a petition saying that this this shouldn't be made. And I'm going, script hasn't even been written yet. Let's all calm the fuck down. We don't know what it's going to be like. What if it's uh, uh, kind of showing how great the Irish people were at at coping, you know, and the gallows humour and that happens in periods of bleakness. Darkness always brings through a kind of certain type of dark humour as well. What if a new generation gain an insight into what, what actually happened? People who never knew about it, younger generations who have no idea what the famine is. But we don't know until we see that product. It and was... now we're increasingly living in an age where we're trying to censor stuff before it's even been made or said, or, or existed. This happened in Australia, in Sydney, with the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. They approached a guy who's a, a an imam and a, asked him to, to write a speech on this topic, which, and he said, uh, they asked him to provide a couple of topics and then they approved this one topic, which he said, which was like the honour of Western killings. It was about, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was about honour killings, how come our honour killings are worse than your killings and your idea of what's honourable. Yeah. What is honourable about killing, basically. He hadn't even written the speech, and I'm sure it would have... Like, it was an inflammatory title, obviously, but I'm sure it would have... Like, come, heckle, come Heckle Christ, yes, right? Which exactly. Was, you know, yeah. And just from the title, it was just this uproar and fury, and there's a similar thing where, like, if you have a topic that's banned, Dan Savage got in trouble for talking about the word tranny and whether it was acceptable to use the word tranny or not. He talked about whether it was acceptable to use that word and people went off at him for using that word. Well, that's quite an interesting area as well because um, I don't think tranny's derogatory. I would just say uh, tranny is short for transvestite. Yeah. Transsexual, I think, is different. Yeah. So I'd maybe not say tranny for transsexual, but definitely uh, if a man uh, dresses as a woman can be straight or gay I would say oh yeah tranny like transvestite I don't here I don't think that's that's wrong but we're now getting into increasingly interesting areas between uh transgender people uh radical feminists yeah and everyone else in between is becoming quite a hot potato now that you have to refer to yourself as cisgendered if you're born normal gender do you know about yeah, this yeah, yeah. right okay yeah <laughs> you know because well yeah yeah of course of course um Nobody is normal. No, like, everyone no, has yeah, a what point is normal? of difference. What is normal is a good question. But um, just, yeah, statistically, having to hedge everything you say is worrying to me, that you can get in trouble for having a conversation about whether a word is acceptable. Yeah. Well, Jermaine Greer is just... Um, has uh, there's a big you know and again she's uh, she's one of yours isn't she yes Jermaine so she just got in trouble because she went to now I don't know exactly enough on this but she went to Oxford uh, Cambridge was it Cambridge to do a talk oh no she she taught well, at Oxford she did yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so she went to Oxford to do a talk recently and uh, 
and it was protested by the LGBT groups because she's made what they seem to transphobic comments before. Uh, although her comments were quite incendiary, and I also think that the problem with someone like Jermaine Greer is that she's a uh, she's a contrarian and a controversialist. Yeah. So I don't mind, and this is this is my problem. I'm kind of like working on an Edinburgh show around this topic at the moment. I feel that in the age of social media, we've become so forced to have an opinion on everything, but not just an opinion. It's not enough to just have some thoughts, right? Uh, and it's totally unacceptable to have no thoughts, <laughs> mm. but you well, have you to have, if you don't have the most black or white opinion. Yeah. Right. And to get attention. And what I think is really interesting about comedy is all of the shades of grey. And I, the fact that even the phrase shade of grey is shit now because that terrible book and film that's about to come out annoys me. Because in comedy, that's the, where the interesting points lie. It's all the subtleties in between. Well, it's it is the space. These complicated ideas. And I think. As you say, like, I've met Jermaine Greer once or twice. She's a lovely woman. And then she gets on stage and she plays this character that is as intensely insane as, like, a right-wing radio jock who you, you can meet those guys and they're also normal, happy people. And then they go onto radio and spew this bile and it's so weird that they feel they have to do that to, to be a person or to be themselves. Because they realise that's where money is and... Uh... Even advertising has cottoned onto it now, right? It's all about personality. So we have someone here you might have heard of called Katie Hopkins. Oh, yeah. She just deliberately says horrible things all yeah, the time. Yeah, now I, the way I describe Katie Hopkins is she's hateful for a biscuit. I literally, if someone offered her a biscuit, she'd say something hateful. And that's the kind of lack of credit or anything I give her. Someone said to me the other day, they met her, she was quite lovely. And I said I found that worse. Yeah, I that's... find that's abhorrent because then you're just having controversial views for cash and... The point of that is we can never get into any interesting debate or solve problems if people are only willing to be the extreme ends of the argument. It takes some kind of middle ground. Well, I think that's really interesting because this is the this is kind of the the real uh, the nub of it, which is that you need first you need to have offensive things said and debated like that needs to happen. It can't just be shut down. You need to actually see what people say and then address it and deal with it. But equally no one's dealing with anything because the things that actually get said are so extreme nobody says you know i'm slightly nervous around gay people yeah and then has a conversation no one, about it no well one, no one ever says i've had racist thoughts yeah because the, the line is you're either racist or you're not and you go well it's way more complicated than that i wouldn't say i'm racist would I say that I'd never have had a racist thought? No, I couldn't say that. Yeah. Uh, and most people, most civilised, smart people, the better part of you overtakes something that might be more baser or comes from another kind of almost tribalistic instinct or wherever it comes from. It doesn't mean that you won't have a thought. Yeah. You know, you, that you you might have a bad thought and you go, oh, that, that, that thought I just had was totally wrong you know but I think we're almost at a point where it's unacceptable to say you even thought that yeah and then people who do have those thoughts and can't and don't want to be censored then they go to the other extreme and you get you know fascist exactly exactly where you go oh yeah no okay uh I had a thought you know and 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 everyone does yeah so whether it's about sexuality whether it's about race whether it's about gender uh whether it's about disability or differently abled we all have our levels of what we feel comfortable with and they're constantly being challenged and they should be challenged but I think the problem is when we get into an area where we can't we feel like we can't even say so for example with the uh with the Jermaine Greer thing 
she said controversial things like you can't be a woman until you've had a smelly vagina and it was like speak for yourself love I keep mine quite clean yeah. you know but uh but deliberately being controversial now I love things so here's how I feel I've had a quite interesting experience uh recently where um i sort of got into watching rupaul's drag race which i love right yeah. i love rupaul's drag race brilliant i love rupaul i love uh, uh michelle uh visage you know love them all on there um and what's interesting about that is what the idea of being a woman is and challenging that right and i love watching the show but then occasionally i get like filled with rage because a very convincing transvestite or tranny depending on which you write you know uh, a very convincing transvestite will describe themselves as being fishy. As I'm bringing in... fishy realness. And what fishy realness is, is fishy, the smell of a vagina. I'm so real that, I, that I you like think a... I had a smelly vagina. And then so as a feminist, I find that really fucking insulting. I'm like, that's so rude. Okay. And so if you want us to kind of temper how we talk about transvestites then you need to temper that you can't refer to women as like fishy because that's not right well here's that's where you get into these weird kind of privilege wars or you know this idea that okay here's there's three steps to this one is that you have this idea where say i wear a geisha costume that's seen as really exploitative and like colonialist and i'm assuming their culture but nobody says that if they see a japanese woman in a business suit right and don't say they aren't that they're co-opting and exploiting white culture uh, western experience yeah so you have this thing with the with the transvestite people who are packaging and orientalizing and exoticizing a pretty fake idea of what womanhood is and then you have us who are you know eating this packaged well, yeah so are we exploiting trannies are they exploiting us or are they or... like who who here is the victim or like are we equal are we allowed to take one another's stuff uh, well, I think as well, what's interesting is because there's very, I think there's very, there's, there's lines, but they're quite blurred. Also, when we move from transvestite into transgender, which is totally a different thing. So, for example, with transvestites, another thing that I saw in RuPaul's Drag Race, which That's, upset me. It's a very strange idea of what women are. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a very, it's almost quite a 90s version, which kind of makes sense because RuPaul was kind of the big 90s. And the, the interesting thing about watching the show is that RuPaul is this amazing character and possibly why he's done so well because he is all about positivity and affirmation and embracing different shapes and sizes so you know the drag there was one series where they the drag queen split into two factions and one lot called themselves the heathers after yeah. the movie heather and the other lot split themselves into what they called the well they didn't call themselves the boogers the heathers called them the boogers and they were like they're the ugly drags uh -huh. right and so they were the bigger ones or what they found to be uh, less facially attractive or yeah. not very good drag queens and I was like wow even in a world where it's all about acceptance and being what you truly want to be you're still getting people splitting themselves off to go you're not as good at, th at this as us or you're ugly or you're fat and and sort of hurtful stuff like that so um and I think on that same series one of the tasks they get crazy tasks to do um was they got some like pole dancers in and the drag queens had to learn how to pole dance and uh then at one point one of the uh guys went oh god i just caught a glimpse of her vagina and that upset me again because i had another moment of going you are actively trying to look like a woman and take everything of this element of what womanhood is right but you're disgusted, but you're disgusted by the sight of a vagina 
So then I was offended again, you know, like, so I watch stuff like that and I, and I like it and I enjoy it because I enjoy the characters on it. You know, some of them are super talented at making costumes, you know, um, and, Doing you know, really it, yeah. creative. Uh, but then there's other sides of it like that that kind of upset me as a feminist, like that you find the idea of womanhood so disgusting. And then recently I had a, uh, I was doing a sort of corporate gig mm. And uh, they went, oh, we kind of don't really have a changing room for you. Well, we'll have a room. Do you mind sharing it with the drag queens? And I went, well, I need space to work through my stuff, but also I am going to get changed and I just don't want to be in a communal changing room. Now, that could have been if it was with other women, yeah. if it was with men, yeah. or if it was with drag queens. Yeah. But then I almost felt like afraid to say I don't want to share that in case it looked in case like it looked like you didn't think they were also women yeah yeah but I was like I don't want to share a dressing room with anyone if I want to get change and then consequently uh they didn't turn up for the whole show they turned up at the end and one of them was uh was kind of very much into is it Harajuku you know the yeah, Japanese yeah, yeah. right so she was sort of dressed uh like that and the other uh tranny was n- as not as neat a tranny so, um, and he was a straight man. So that's what irritated me. I was like, I'm sort of expected to just kind of get on with it and share a space. But I'm in with a heterosexual red-blooded male that I've got to get changed in front of. Yes. I wouldn't be getting changed in front of a male comic. Yeah. Down to my bra. Like, I wanted to put an evening yeah. dress on for the show and everything. He might feel comfortable in his bra in front of me, but I don't, I don't necessarily yeah. feel comfortable. And, but also, you know, not all transvestites are gay. You know, that's the other thing. Uh, uh, many, in fact, the majority of transvestites that I know are I'm straight. Not. So you're asking me to kind of, you know, uh, be open and just do all of that with a guy that he kind of came over and said how nice my legs were. And he was like, I'm actually straight, you know, um, and, and we were chatting, but I was like, they're not, you know, so you're constantly tiptoeing around stuff that you feel a little bit afraid to say. Well, you don't want to make assumptions, but it's also rude to ask somebody specifics about their sexuality. sexuality. Like if someone come up to me and went, are you straight or are you gay? The, the, I would be like, all right, back off. That's not the first question you get to ask me. Yeah, exactly. And But it might be relevant. So I had this uh, recently, I posted, oh, about six months ago, I posted a picture with me and a friend, uh, one of my best friends. She lives in America. She came back and I posted a, a selfie of us saying, you know, transatlantic love. And some relative stranger posted, hey, are you a lesbian? And I was like, I, I wanted to say no. And then I wanted to say, it's none of your business. And I... Also, I and I just ended up writing, "Are you asking me out?" Because otherwise, yeah. What what relevance is it to you? Why would that? Why would that be something that you asked about someone? But in a situation where you're sharing a change room, yeah, it's kind of like what you want to say at the door if you're coming in. Are you? Are you straight? But then do you say that if there's a woman coming in? Are you a lesbian? Like yeah, yeah. Which is why are you going to look at me with lust in your eyes? Like, yeah, but actually, I just wanted to have my own space, and I kind of go. I'm at a point in my career where I've earned my own space. So I was able to say that, but I felt that I wasn't able to kind of go, not really. Yeah. Not really, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that wasn't anything to do with, with being trans or gender or anything else, but just I want my own space. So I kind of went headspace for writing, which it was as well. Yeah. But also, you know, I, I, don't, Modesty. I don't use the community changing rooms in the gym even, it's, you know, so. It's funny that we some don't. Some people are really open about it. I mean, I'll see a lot of like, women just kind of chatting 
you know, and I'm totally fine with that, but I like to, like, get in, get changed. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily want to have a muff conversation. 150 <laughs> you know, like, years ago, that inclination on your part would have been seen as, like, women's natural virtue. Yeah. Like, that you don't want to be uh, nude in front of other people. I'm, I'm all for... I don't know also, about nudity, be... but I love going to the beach. Like, if I have body image issues, if I go to the beach and everyone's in swimming costumes... It completely cures me. I feel so good. I mean, like everybody's ugly and well, everybody's beautiful. And well, I, feel I don't okay. mind. I don't mind that. And beach is fine, and all of that is fine. There is also another little element that came that comes into it, is that you know, and this is probably the same with you at home. Being a performer, doing stand up, and I've done you know some telly and stuff. I am recognisable to some people, not all people. Yeah. So therefore, again, then there's a a, a, a different level of. Wouldn't it be interesting for us to see that person? Yeah, yeah. So it becomes it becomes even more of a privacy issue. And I kind of uh, I don't even like it. For example, I left my last gym. I was doing a TV show here. This was a few years ago, and um, and as it was airing, I I just don't like talking to anyone in classes. I like going in, concentrating on the thing that I'm doing, and then getting out. I'm not there for small talk. Yeah. I don't want to have a conversation, and I live in a quite well, a, quite vulnerable as well yeah middle class bit of north london you know and i don't want to chat with these women over you know where they got their nanny from and why they ordered baby chinos for their kids i'm not interested you know so i just want to get in and that sounds really dismissive but i hate yummy mummies um so <laughs> I, I just want to get in do my workout and leave and people do kind of try and talk and kind of but i've kind of got my friends <laughs> Yeah, they, I've got I mean, my friends, and that's people, very that's much their functional social life. That's exactly. their only alone time, or they're out away from their family, or whatever. But if it's not your thing, for me, it's it's. I do more stuff on the radio than I do uh, TV, um, and it's talking. Like people will hear me talking, and kind and of and recognize voice. my voice, and that's very. They say you don't look like you sound. Like they have a different idea, and I that can happen. So sometimes I will actually like talk quietly or sort of slightly change, if I'm in public, change the way I, not that it happens often, I'm not particularly famous, but it's a very weird feeling. Yeah, yeah. And then you, yeah, so you just kind of, you kind of go, oh no, I need my, you know, I need my space, I need my, but so I find all of that really interesting because, you know, you and I've talked about this with friends before, because you can kind of see both sides of the argument. And, uh, and so I have no, um, kind of I have no not I only know what it's like to be a woman and I have been a woman all of my life and I I don't want to be anything else apart from a woman yeah so maybe that is a privilege in the same way if you wanted to be a man and you are a man and you've always been a man you know um but but it's interesting because because to think of being a woman as being a privilege is also an interesting idea because we live in a world where even though we're 51% of the population, it's not. you are a second class citizen. And I, I don't, I hate to say it, I hate saying it out loud because I don't want it to be actualize, true. I don't want it to be true, mm. but there are, there is, there are points in your life where you go, oh wow, of course, you know, even just in conversations, um, I was doing a panel thing a couple of weeks ago um, and it was, it was just a radio thing and uh there was a lot more willingness for the men to interrupt a conversation this has been a big kind of topic of conversation here because panel shows on tv is such a huge thing as well but i realized or have realized over time that um 
men are brought up with this idea that that uh, of of uh, that they should always speak and what they have to say is important. Yeah. And it's a a, a male's privilege to be heard. Mm. And 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 I don't think women or generation of women, and if I had kids and certainly if I had a girl, I I would bring her up to believe that it's her right and privilege to be heard as much as the next person. Yeah. You know, but I do think that we grew up in an era where, where boys are, to- are, co- are constantly encouraged and told, and and they so they they never question themselves, they never hold back, they never go in, they don't listen quite as much. They just this is this barrel is straight through. You know, really interestingly, I do this radio show. I have a co-host who's a guy, and we'll lead different segments. So I'll leave one segment, we talk about the topic, I bring it up and I have the most to say about it. The next segment he'll lead and he has the most to say about it. We sort of swap roles like that. When I lead the segment, we will occasionally get text in being like, love the sound of your own voice, don't you, Fraser? Like that never happens with Dave. Even though, like listening back and I do some of the editing and stuff, he talks a quarter more than I do, maybe a third. Right. Yeah, and so Overall, people, they just assume that you're talking a lot, and you're... they just notice it as though I were talking much more than I am, as though, and so I, I you know, sometimes I just, you know, I, I'll say to myself, it's because my, I'm so much more important, but it's not. It's just because my voice is more annoying to them. I don't have an annoying voice. I don't. I, really I don't, don't even think it's annoying. I just that I think they probably think she's talking a lot for a woman. Yeah. And here's the problem: it's because. Male has become the and Grayson Perry said this. Who oh, there we go? If we're speaking about transvestites, absolutely one of my favourite people. He's phenomenal. He's such a such a brain, such a talent, so full of ideas. And he said at this point that the white middle class male became the norm or became the narrative, mm. and anything outside of that. If you're a person of colour, if you're a woman, yep. you know, uh, if you're not straight, you know. Yep. Uh, then then that becomes outside of that norm. And I've sort of had similar conversations to this recently for various things here, like projects and stuff. So when they're talking about TV or radio, they'll sometimes come up with a phrase, uh, you know, we want more women, we want to skew the narrative. And you're like, being female isn't skewing a narrative. It's, it's we're the majority. We're actually the majority. Actually the majority. But it's become so long ingrained that the narrative is male, yeah. Preferably white, middle the, class, middle aged. That's the, that's the neutral, neutral. But yeah, yeah. And anything from that is that's skewing it. Unflavored water, milk, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Everything Any- else is a, a flavor. There's uh, uh, in, until the 1950s, on the census, you had white, and then other races included Irish and Italian. Wow. Like, yeah, that's horrific. No one isn't it? who is Irish now would think of themselves as non-white. These categories are so arbitrary. Yeah. That who has the privilege and who doesn't. Like it doesn't make any sense that we have these classes or they're so who we who we give the power to or who we see as outside is. And and that's the interesting idea that the the white male narrative is the thing. And and so the second class citizen thing I guess came from the first time, the first time I remember having kind of like a feminist, I guess, awakening was when I was fourteen years old, mm. and I was listening to an advert on the radio, and it was for, I think it might have been like Capital Radio, which is like the uh, one in Central London, mm. and uh, the advert was a, it, they were advertising to advertise on the radio, so it was quite meta. Oh, yeah. uh, it was a, it was an advert for radio advertising, and 
the idea behind the advert was I always that think they, that's so desperate like at the cinema where they're like cinema advertising it works and you're like why well, do it you doesn't. Know? <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah so so it was saying kind of like you should advertise on the radio and the guy was like you should advertise on the radio more uh, it's cheaper than television you save 30 percent on radio advertising meaning you'll have more money to buy a bigger car and get a better looking secretary uh, and I remember hearing that. I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, uh, at 14 years old going, oh, that advert's really insulting. That's awful. They just assume all the people in positions of power are men. <laughs> that can't be true, can it? Can it? And that was the first point where I went, oh, okay, we're, we're... We don't win. We're not equal, you know. I mean, we are equal in terms of, you know... But in terms of the world and in terms of the way it works, we're still not equal. Um, and there's a, a stand-up comic uh, called Doc Brown. who oh, yeah, uh, he's great. Yeah, yeah. He's got... Uh, I don't know if he has one or two daughters, but I did a gig with him recently, and he was talking about being sort of... Again, this white male narrative. I think he'd done something like Midsummer's. I don't want to kind of, like, run through the whole bit of his material, but they were talking about how they couldn't have him for a part in something because this was this story was a white man's story and they didn't know what a black man's story was like he, he didn't have a, a day like anyone else and he was like you know I'm kind of mixed so I so to me this is interesting because I kind of hear this argument from this side and this argument from this side and he goes no matter whatever happens to me where I feel as if uh you know my ethnicity is not being taken into account or I feel like people are being racist he's like I'm one rung up the ladder from women <laughs> who just get the worst deal is that just the worst? It like being a woman is just the worst deal. So uh, wait a minute, is it? I don't. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't but want I, it to I be think the worst deal. I think things are changing. Like uh, it's it's interesting because it feels like things are changing very slowly, not quickly enough for my liking. But um, I remember being in New York, like um, maybe like yeah, it was last Christmas. It was when they had the polar vortex thing, right? So we went to the cinema. And uh might have been Walter Mitty we went to see, but I watched the trailers and I felt like I didn't exist as a human being. It was incredible. <laughs> I think they trailered like maybe like the new Frankenstein, Bad Neighbourhood, who had people in it who I know and like, like Hannibal Barres. Yeah. Uh, but the only woman that I saw in that film was Rose Byrne. Yeah. And I was supposed to believe that she was married to Seth Rogen. <laughs> like that's the, that's what oh, I was he supposed must to have believe. An incredible personality and a huge penis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because so and, and so the one female role in that film was for an incredibly beautiful model-looking woman. Oh, you look at the and, stats on who plays mothers? Yeah. The the mother of your main character who's 5 years older than him or yeah, you know just yeah. this brutal double standards just it's just but, but also, here's the interesting thing. I think those people that are smart kind of will begin to get the idea that you have to start including women and making more stuff for us because, you know, we make money. There's yeah. a reason that The Other Woman, that film was so successful and it's a terrible, terrible film. Bridesmaids. Like Bridesmaids is amazing. Yeah. But, but The Other Woman was a terrible movie. Yeah. And I went and it, it like smashed box office records and did so well and I was like oh this is literally because it's the only it's the thing. only thing so uh, women are so hungry to find that narrative that relates them and I guess the narrative then all comes into this other area where it's kind of 
we are getting skewed between gender lines are being drawn and yeah. people are feeling quite protective about what community and and what they're part of. It's like quite a heightened time at the moment. And at the moment there's this almost competitiveness about criticism, which is that you're not allowed to criticise from above. You're only allowed to criticise from a position of being oppressed. Right. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that because a lot of like the colonial, the badness of the colonial project was that it was always top down. It was always men assuming that they knew best. But like this was some years ago, a guy in Sydney, a guy I know and like, uh, called me uh, an Aryan warrior princess, which would be, which he said as though it was a compliment, but I'm half Jewish. Right. And I said, that's not a comp- that's not okay for you to call me that. And he was like, well, I'm yeah, Chinese. Yeah, if there's one word yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, a, that a person with Jewish heritage might take offence to, it is the word Aryan. Yeah, being, yeah. And he insisted on it. And he's like, that's what you look like, that's what you are. And I was like, no, it's not okay for you to call me that. And he said, well, I'm Chinese. Do you know the number of times people have said stuff to me? Right. And I so like, therefore I can do it to you? That doesn't make any sense. So, so his defence to that was to me criticising him was that he was lower down the ladder than I was in Australian society, according to him, and therefore I couldn't say, I couldn't criticise him, but he could criticise me. That's interesting. And that's, that's interesting because that's where we uh, get into sort of freedom of speech and what, you know, uh, are people defending freedom of speech and the ability to, pay it, to, to say anything or are they just defending it up until the point that it reflects on them and it's something they don't like? Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's it's very weird and problematic to say that you can't have a critical perspective if you have a position of privilege, because well, in comedy, I always that's that's always my instinctive, I guess, uh, my instinctive efforts would be to punch up. Yeah, I always because I think those people can handle it and take it, and so if I'm going to be critical of anyone, I'm going to go upwards. So. I'll mock the Kardashians, they've got enough money, you know, yeah. or the royal family, um, but I wouldn't a homeless person. Yeah. So I, so that, for me, is, I guess, um, my kind of, how I would, how I, my, my stance in comedy is. That's what I kind of try yeah, and do. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I try that, my, I try to do that myself, but I do think that there's a problem with, with it, or... Because it makes some people immune from criticism. Yeah, yeah. And because they can use oppression as a as a defence. Okay, well, here's quite an interesting one then. Um, because this came up for discussion. And I, like, uh, when the Robin Thicke song came out uh, and people quite rightfully went, oh, this is just a horrible sort of anthem to rape. Yeah. Great. You know, and more annoyingly, it was so catchy. Yeah. Like, there's no denying the song was catchy. Yeah. And it had Pharrell uh, Williams attached to it, who prior to that, you were like, Pharrell Williams is one of the coolest men on the face of He's the planet. He's incredibly good you know? producer, such <laughs> and, good taste. And uh, so when that song came out, that was really quite an interesting thing because people went mad and uh, and said, you know, it was gross, it was horrific, it was misogynist. And then the kind of comeback to that was, well... What you know? Why aren't you attacking Biggie Smalls because he's dead? Firstly, um, you know, and, and people like that who've done misogynist lyrics before. Why are you attacking Robin Thicke? And my idea on that was kind of like because Robin Thicke hadn't come. It 
it's not right either way. Yeah. But I grew up in the 90s, so I grew up with a lot of... And this is a, a problem that I have, a battle that I have with myself constantly because I love that music, you know? I lo- That informed my teenage years, listening to Biggie Small, listening to Warren G, mm. you know, Snoop, like... Snoop, I find harder to listen to now, but, like, I had the Doggy-style album, and that's such a horrific... You know, but I grew up listening to that, and so that is a a part of me, and now looking back at it objectively, I'm like, oh, God, this is... What was I thinking? Yeah. But I wasn't thinking. I was just enjoying the music. But also, as, like, a working-class white girl, there is a sense of something bubbling under, an anger, a thing that you could relate to, a part of your youth... uh, this kind of like fighting back and that's why I guess it was kind of accepted in rap music for so long because it was a voice yeah it was you know a a poor black community having a voice Mm. and I guess it makes it all the more insulting when 15 years 20 years even down the line someone like Robin Thicke who comes from a very privileged background uh, who really has nothing to rebel against to just come out and just give a bit of spit some hate yeah, and I'm not saying that it makes it any more excusable. It doesn't, uh, but this is well, where all this interesting kind of grey area comes in. Yeah, it is. Super I'm like grey and super upsetting because you know I, that there was that uh, nine hours in New York video, however long it was. Yeah, how long was it? I can't even remember. Oh yeah, where she walks around the walks street. Walks around, and then the kind of backlash to that, which was the only people who were, ha- who were catcalling her were guys of color. Yeah, and it wasn't, and then they they sort of came back and said it wasn't only them. But the other guys were sort of too quiet or did it too, in kind of subtle and sneaky ways. Well, then they should have showed both. That's the problem. Yeah, they should That's the problem because it's, then it's a misrepresentation. Uh, uh, what was interesting about that video is is now people are ki- finally coming to realise that that's what women kind of go through. And they're like, it's horrific. But I, I had that like all through my teenage years, my early 20s. Blonde hair, boobs, big boobs. I, I literally, there were days where you couldn't go out without getting stopped. You yeah. will have had this. You're yeah. blonde, you know, you've got a great figure. You go out, you you know, guys oh, will. Shucks. No, but they <laughs> do, but they do. And especially blonde hair particularly. I mean, yeah. mine's a bit darker now, but it, it turns heads. Like, it really does. Like, um, and so, you know, people get, you know, will give you attention. And a friend of mine, really great stand-up, Roisin Connerty, she... um. She said quite an interesting thing, you know, when people comment on, like, that girl, why is she wearing a short skirt? You know, she's, you know, like, she's just showing it out to all the men. And she's like, she hasn't worn that skirt for all men. She's worn it for one guy that she really likes, you know, and that's the thing. If you Um, could have, like, you know those lanterns which have, like, a narrow beam? If you could do that with slutty dressing, that would be the the top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) no one else could see it. It was just, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not hitting on every guy in this room. Just that one. Just Just that that one. one. (laughs) Yeah. Um... But what was interesting about that is uh, I always think the way to attack these things is with humour. So when that video came out, I kind of said, look, we need to change the terms catcalling and wolf whistling because yeah. I like cats and I also like whistling. We need to call it what it is, a dickhead alarm. And then that way it's much easier to deal with as a woman. If you walk past a guy and he shouts, shouts that you can take your keys out your bag and go sorry mate your dickhead alarm's gone off and then you just press a button and laugh in his face you know so sometimes actually arming women with humor and to enable them to obviously if it's a threatening situation it's different and then I was talking about it with my boyfriend and he said this is probably quite controversial because he's a feminist you know he went but but if 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 men can't kind of talk to women in the street then like, how would you ever meet anyone? And I went, well, there's bars and nightclubs. That's why people go to bars and nightclubs. Yeah, signals of availability. Uh, you know, I was like, that's just a kind of like, 
someone hitting onto you. But then there is this thing of it's just human behaviour and we can't control well, all human behaviour, can we? There are preliminary things to going up and telling someone that their ass looks great. Yeah. Like, if someone has done that to you out of the blue, out of nowhere, there's five or six steps that they've skipped or five or six signals that they've Missed. misread. Yeah. Which shows that they're a creepy person. Oh, yeah. we had. There was a guy, um, a, a friend of a friend who, who we used to call... Uh, Step one, step ten, gabs. It was exactly that. Different scenario. Neither are. You smile at them. They look at you. You you look back at them. Like they kind of smile at you again. That's the point at which you go, hey, I noticed I I couldn't help looking at you. Yes. But if somebody just comes up to you out of your fucking peripheral vision and being like, I haven't taken my eyes off you for half an hour, that's creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. Well, step one, step ten, gabs was a little bit further on than that. This was a girl he was on a date with, but it was a first date. And um, they'd gone back to hers or his. I'm not sure it might have been his. Uh, and uh, they were kind of on the sofa having a glass of wine, just kind of really opening up to each other. And then she brought up her her dad's kind of recent death and it was all quite emotional. And she turned around to get a tissue out of her bag. And when she turned back around, he had his penis out. No, like no. So he's step one, step ten. How no. you can totally misread from someone emotionally, making themselves available to go and maybe a blowy or a hand job. I don't tissue, know. Tissue, you say? <laughs> yeah. I know what those are for. <laughs> so, so that applies across every end of the the spectrum. But um, I think there's a thing of like you know if what you're doing is something that is probably not appropriate behaviour. You know, if you're shouting out of a moving car. No. You know, then no. If you're shouting it from the top of a building site at someone who's walking underneath you, it's probably not going to be received in the way it's intended, you know? <laughs> um, but here's well, a weird what thing. What way is it intended? Well, here's a, here's a thing that people don't talk about much. And this was a bit of my show that I did in 2012 because it was all about sort of ageing. You know, I'm in my sort of... Can I even still say I'm in my mid-30s anymore? I think I can just about get away with it. But um, it... Uh, there's a thing that happens um so i kind of got to a point where you know you could be talking to a guy and you'd be like seriously do you mind not talking to my face they're right here yeah and i'm sigling in my boobs right you know what have i got to do to get objectified around here mm. which is like was a joke and then i go i'm not saying that men don't approach me in bars anymore they do but it is to get around me so I had a guy come up to me in a club and he was like excuse me and I was like yes and I did a flirty flick of the hair back and he went no just excuse me so he was trying to get around me to get to the yeah. bar but I was so used to getting that attention and no one really talks about that no one talks about that 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 when that stops so here's a longer idea that you can try and explain is there's this increasing feeling of invisibility and what that means like oh I used to get those things and now I don't and I you never realise, uh, you, you, you know, you never, uh, yeah, that you, you were complicit in sexism until it stops. Yeah. Like, I never thought I'd miss sexism. Yeah. And I d- there's lots of, you know, and that's a really, really weird situation. And I think that's because I grew up in an era where you were constantly validated by how you looked. That's exactly this. This is exactly where you have this thing that shouldn't be valued. You don't want it to be valued, but because it is valued and you have it, uh, you start to value it. Like, mm-hmm. I have a pair of high heels. They make me feel pretty. That's insane. They're yeah. completely non-functional. They're not, like, they don't... What do they do? They, they lift your heels. That's all... Like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> what that's is not it? A, that's yeah. not... It's not a good... It's, there's nothing to that. And they make me feel pretty or powerful or 
paid attention to all of the things which you could get if you treated women like people yeah yeah and so i i have these things that i can put on that make me have you know this is that that yeah. is so infuriating that you have that and then you use that and that you want that and that you miss that when it's gone yeah and it almost feels like a betrayal to say it that's why i think it's a really and this is what i love about comedy again these are all the areas that i sort of delve into you know i've kind of gone oh that's here's a different thing that that was a thing that I had and now it's kind of not there as much and it will be there for girls who are like 19, 20. So you go, oh, do I miss that attention? But, you know, or do I get attention in a different way? I I probably replaced it with becoming a stand-up. <laughs> you know, I didn't start doing stand-up till I was in my late 20s. Yeah. So, um, you know, I still get like attention, but it is but it is interesting. It is interesting where you, you catch someone's eye and you go, oh, do they think I'm... And they're probably looking at the girl who's like 23 behind you and is... Uh, you know, got it all in front of her. And it's really interesting because I went through a phase of sort of feeling, if I'm brutally honest, like slightly hateful towards younger women. Like, not hateful, like, but like probably not... um, Jealous. There there are some... Yeah, like like maybe even, I guess, because I met my boyfriend when I was like 29, just coming up to my 30th birthday. And there was definitely a point in those few years, I guess, between like 27 to 29 where I was single and I was kind of meeting guys and then kind of seeing the carefreeness or the you know and probably in my early 30s even or when you first start seeing the wrinkles you're like oh that's not fair look at them that's not so not not hatred and then I went through that into another like I feel like they're all my daughters it's really (laughs) weird but there is a thing of like I feel a connection like a like an eternal instinct yeah almost but like bound like like Mm -hmm. so so there was a girl on the train uh recently who was getting harassed by this really drunken guy who was on it and he was in a suit with sick on it and it was like lunchtime so he'd obviously not gone home the night before and he was being really abusive to everyone on the train she had earphones in and um so, okay, before I carry on describing this, there's a comedian called Mike Wilmot who oh, has a brilliant him. bit about his his wife and his daughters. Like, he's afraid that... like He's like, women scare me. I'm scared they're going to form into one giant woman and attack me. And this is what happened on the train because this girl had her earphones on and this guy was going, blondie, blondie, don't ignore me, you fucking bitch. Yeah. And then this South African girl was like, uh, my friend, you want to watch the way you use your mouth. That yeah. is not appropriate language. Right? <laughs> and then I was like, she's obviously not interested, mate. If she was, she'd take her headphones off and talk to you. You need to leave her alone. And then he like said it again and another woman did. And then like a couple of us stood up and then he just kind of backed down because there were like five or six women <laughs> and we kind of performed, it sort of got into this kind of protective circle around the young 19 year old girl um like she's us she's us having to deal with that crap yeah all our lives yeah exactly so then you start to feel you start to recognize those points in other in other people so yeah i guess it wouldn't be a a hatred but it's definitely an envy there was a point probably in my you know somewhere in my late 20s to maybe early 30s where i was kind of like a little bit jealous you know um because youth is such a commodity like you feel so loving towards them now i just feel like they're me i'm them and what's interesting with with the feminism thing because i think you know we all have these kind of problem things as you was as i was saying i like my heels like i like them they make me feel pretty i have a problem with that but there are women who are taking advantage of what gains we have made and still 
really exploiting and taking advantage of the old stuff as well. Right. And perpetuating it in a way that, like, we should all... It's, it's still there, we all have it, but we should all be kind of chipping away at it in ourselves. Yeah. Bit by bit. And there are girls who don't do that, who want a job and want to be treated with respect, but also want a boyfriend that buys them heaps of stuff and takes them heaps of places. Not just not just because it's, it'd be nice to have somebody looking after you, but because... Everyone wants someone to look after them, but well, my because mom's... they think they deserve it for being a woman. Yeah, yeah. Well, my mum's quite old-fashioned in that way. You know, for many years she was kind of like, why don't you just marry a footballer? Or like, when I was like 18 years old, Brian, Adam asked, Brian Adams asked me out. <laughs> it's a really bizarre situation. I was going up for a casting for like a TV commercial or something. And it was at this place in West London that has like a load of A&R companies in it. So he was there and we didn't realise it was him. And he was a bit of a knob and we were quite rude to him. He basically went, um, what do you say? Like my friend called me from across the bar. So we were in this bar waiting to go in. And she was like, Tiff, what do you want to drink? And he was like, Tiff, is that your name? Tiffany, that's an awesome name. What about <laughs> breakfast at yours? And I was like, oh, like I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Then he followed it up with, can I take you to lunch? Can I get your number? And then my mum's genuine response Bearing in mind, my mum was 34 when she had me, so she's, you know... Very old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She went, uh, she she went, you should have gone out for him just once. He would have bought you a Porsche or something. <laughs> like, don't be a prostitute, unless it's for a Porsche, you know. Like, yeah, so there yeah. was something What's in that. What's your price, lady? Yeah, so there was something in that uh, kind of, that, that appealed to her. And I remember at younger times as well, kind of going, why don't you just meet a guy who's got some money, you know, and... And then she's over the years, she's sort of been eventually ground down by my ambition. Yeah. Um, And I guess when I first met my boyfriend, because I was sort of in between jobbing, acting, and just sort of in the infancy of doing stand-up and stuff, he was kind of probably making more money than me. And then that flipped, you know, and then there's a long time I've been the one who's the, I guess, the status player in terms of career. And then he had... And then we're like, last year or the year before, like he had a year where he was doing really well and then it was kind of more balanced and then it tips backwards and forwards, but... That's kind of how it should be, though. Like, yeah. I think that's, that's... I think that is how it should be, how, you know, you should look after one another and whoever has the most at any given time uh, should should do that. I just think there are people who are playing both games. Yeah. And that, that being as privileged as a man doesn't mean that it's easy to be a man like it's life is hard it's hard to get things it's hard to do things if you want rights you also have responsibilities like yeah being not a slave means you have to look after yourself and also you have to look after other people it's not just somebody keeps you and beats you and makes you do stuff that you actually have to deal with everything in life and that's really difficult it's interesting, isn't it, to refer to it as being not a slave because I've never thought of it before as slavery, but essentially there were many, many years where that was women the status quo for women. You know, Most of the work, most of the menial food and sewing and making clothes and making everything warm and comfortable and everything, like 90% of the work, and the deal was if somebody attacked you and tried to kill you, your man would not let that happen. Yeah. No one else was allowed to rape you. He was. No one else was. Yeah. And that was the deal. That was the... And you were the slave. We yeah, you had a half... Deal it's anymore. a half-life, isn't it? It's, it's really interesting how those attitudes still hold, though, because if my mum sees my boyfriend, 
and she's like, God, that shirt, like you could have given that an iron. She'll say that to me. She'll go, you, you could have given that an iron. And he gets really annoyed. He goes, I'm more than capable of ironing my own shirt. My mum brought me up so that if I had clothes that needed ironing, I did them myself. Yeah. You know, but my mum still sees that as if you could have... And I was like, I don't iron my own clothes, yeah. let alone getting into a situation where I'm going to start doing it for someone else. Yeah. I just don't. So we don't have... We both, like, keep the place tidy, do our things. We don't have prescribed roles, though, as to who does what. In fact, he does more cooking because he's better at it and he's, he's Scottish-Italian, so he's got lots of Italian cooking like recipes and skills so he's kind of like better at that kind of thing yeah. you know and then there's other things that I tend to do more of um I tend to wash clothes more purely because I steamroller through stuff after gigs and yeah. auditions you know and you're like oh, I need to have stuff constantly clean so that kind of falls under my remit more you know yeah. in fact that's quite quite an Italian male thing to do that's a weird way in like a, a sort of Mediterranean family sometimes it's quite a masculine thing to be the person that that cooks you know a lot of italian men know how to make their own sugo and their own spaghetti sauce and that you know yeah yeah but also then the grandmother or the nonna is like the don in the kitchen yeah you, you can't get around everyone's gotta and you gotta bypass nonna <laughs> saying things that are italian is totally non-offensive yeah because we assume that italians are equal with us and so we don't feel that it's racist to say things about italians as a people when yeah. it's offensive to say things about Asians or Chinese or black people or you know it's yeah you can't well isn't it interesting I think it's really interesting how we use these terms because UKIP uh, which is uh, Nigel Farage you might have heard about since you've been over here so yes the kind of right wing sort of sort wears of, a coat and smokes cigarettes and just says really insane things all the time yeah yeah, yeah your smart casual uh, xenophobic friend in a pub that's who he is really he's um he He's got this kind of very anti-immigration, anti-European policy, which is interesting because his wife is like German, I think. It's always the way. Tony Abbott. Oh my God, Tony Abbott knighted Prince Philip on Australia Day. Oh, Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, so embarrassing. I, I, yeah. So embarrassing. Oh God. Tony Abbott. He's, he's, um, I remember last time I was over, he was talking about um, uh, the Middle East coming over and not infecting, but he said, Maybe he said, affecting our way of life and our values. I was like, as if people are getting off planes in burkas and uh, pouring water over barbecues. I found that like really yeah, interesting, yeah, yeah. you know, like it was such a weird statement. But I was like, you're creeping nearer and nearer to our Tony, you know, mm. Tony Blair. Do you want to be a war criminal? You know, that's, it's well, an interesting... Well, doing these exciting little asylum seeker refugee camps where, you know, women don't get tampons and children get called by numbers instead of by name. Horrific. That's like rabbit-proof fence, isn't it? That's kind of like going back to the days of... Anybody in Australia who thinks that they would have not been a Nazi should be protesting against the refugee camps. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different level, but it's not a different thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like... a separation, isn't it? It's saying someone is an underclass, a separate to a... It's really interesting because we've had the big kind of like Auschwitz Memorial 70th birthday here. Uh, birthday. Birthday's mm-hmm. not right. Anniversary. If you could think of a worse word to say. It's Auschwitz 70th birthday, guys. Um, um, but they don't have birthdays because work will set you free. Uh, but it's like, a you know, the anniversary. So there's been obviously lots of ceremonies and stuff. Um, 
and remembrance and uh, sort of Holocaust mm. survivors. Holocaust, probably not Auschwitz, you know. But mm. um, what was interesting is that the, a huge amount of gypsies were also, there was mass genocide there oh, yeah, during the yeah. Holocaust. But and, be- and gay people and political prisoners as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so quite rightfully, Jewish people have that as a forum to discuss and kind of talk about the horrors and we should never forget it. But it's quite interesting that those, those people don't have their own, or that I'm aware of, yeah. uh, are coming together or remembrance of. So I think it's important to remember you know, this this was, yeah, so if you are in any way, so it's now happening again because it's the people who less have the ability to, I guess, fight back. Yeah, and it's the people who are physically, obviously, culturally separate and different that are so easy to target because they don't blend in. Yeah. You know, that's that's it. You can, you can use the way they look as a cipher for their beliefs, yeah. which you can't do when you look at me. You don't know what I believe when you look at me. Yeah, yeah. That's horrific. I didn't know about that. So that's a really that is a terrible, terrible situation. It's just it's just horrifying, and it's that numbers. Thing. But number the concentration camp thing was yeah. the, the, the numbers. That they were it, everywhere, and, and everyone should have known about them. And anyone who thought that they didn't exist was kidding themselves. That's what we all say when we talk about Nazis and people and normal people in the Holocaust. It, it, seeing it happen, how could they not know what was going on? How could you not believe it? And now you see this. It's in the news. There's enough information out there. Anyone in Australia can look up what's happening. And people sort of know it, but don't really want to think about it. And I've, that's been happening now for five years, ten years. Well, there's ignorance and then, and then there's ignored and they're two quite separate yeah, things. And I'm just ignorance going, oh. is having none of the information and ignored is w- or ignoring is what most people do. So yeah, there's an awareness. And you go, oh, that's how it happened. You sort of knew but you didn't want to think about it. Yeah. That's how that stuff happens. That's how you the government gets away with that. You sort of know, but you don't want to think about it. Well, uh, what was interesting, and it's about language and use of words, Maya Angelou said something amazing. She said, oh, I, believe, I believe words are things. I believe they seep into furniture, into the chair, that you can hold a word, that it's a thing. And it was all to do with, if you read, I know why the cage bird sings. Yeah. So, you know, when she is raped by her mother's boyfriend... Mm. And she says his name out loud. Mm. And then he's arrested. He's let out on bail within 24 hours. And her uncles find out. And then the next thing, he's this guy is dead. And the way she took that was she said, I said a man's name and that man died. Yeah. And that's the power of words uh. and what they mean, you know. And then she became like mute for like five or six years, I think it was after that. She literally didn't speak because she went, my words are too powerful I can't say anything, which is amazing because now we live in an age where words are the opposite of powerful. They're just opinions and arseholes. Everyone's got, you know, you know, the old opinions are like arseholes. Everyone's got one. Some are buried more deeply than others. Yeah, and we're all screaming over each other in this kind of cacophony of noise and no one can figure anything out. And and she went to silence. Um, But I guess there's a point there about how you select words as well, Mm. which is really interesting because Nigel Farage and um, UKIP ran a series of poster campaigns. It was like British jobs for British people. And and people looked at this campaign and, you know, sort of kicked off about it, saying it was anti-immigration. But people started saying it was racist. And I was like, well, we need to be really careful here because you can't say that's racist because name the race that they're picking out. Yeah. 
it can only be racist if they've gone no jobs for Africans. It's either yeah, or you know, so or no jobs for Chinese people. It's nationalist. No, is it's what na- it is. it's it's nationalist. It's xenophobic. Yeah. It's uh, jingoistic. Yeah. And really embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing and ill thought out. But people were going batshit, kind of going, it's being racist. So I think, again, this is the power of words, and this is kind of what Maya Angelou was saying. Be precise about what you're saying and yeah. what you don't like and what, what it is that worries you. What Like, really, if you ask people to define exactly what the thing they're bothered about is with racism or with bigotry of any kind, like, you come down to some quite sort of petty little niggles that they have and we're kind of always profiling we're building a thing that was I guess the thing I was saying earlier on like if you kind of go you've never had a racist thought if you say that to me I call you a big fat honky liar you know but you know because people do kind of like you know given a series of faces and races and you know they they have it within you know this if you know criminology and stuff profiling uh, and people's biases and yeah, what they are useful depending thing. on where you grow up what is out of place to you and I'm in the privileged position of having been born and raised in London which is completely a melting pot there's every nationality and when, when I was at school I was actually I think it was like I was sort of the white kids were pretty much in the minority yeah my high so school we, was a selective school so it was 80 percent uh, non-white right and so then you grow up in an environment what's really interesting is uh, problems with like sort of racism and bigotry here are generally as a rule blamed on the working classes which you go actually it's not really the work I'm not saying there's no racist working class people but you go a lot of us just get on with it because we've all been thrown together from the start so yeah. you get to learn about other people's cultures you mix together you you know uh, whereas actually you get higher up people separate themselves more yeah so it's actually the sort of upper class people the rich people that stick to their you well, know we're going to be here you'll be there uh, there's this thing uh, i can't even remember who said it but it was quite a good one tolerance doesn't happen in universities or boardrooms or business everyone's tolerant there where we actually test tolerance and where you see it at its most is in the suburbs where there's a white bread family and their next door neighbors have just decided to barbecue a goat in their backyard like that's where tolerance happens or doesn't happen like that's actually yeah where where you deal with it have you ever had curried goat yes yes amazing (laughs) by accident i was in little haiti in um oh god in miami and walked into a place and there was this woman spoke sort of creole french and she said it's chicken or spinach basically is what it came down to the options and i said i'll have the spinach and there were hooves in it um and so i had a curried goat by accident but it was it was delightful i just didn't expect there to To get it yeah (laughs) but yeah that's a really interesting way of, of of putting it you know um that we all but that's that's the beauty of living in a civilized society you know to be challenged to get to receive new information to receive you know to not be set in your so set in your position that you cannot be moved yeah you're you're solid i'm unwavering and this is how i think and this is how i feel and fuck anyone that tries to challenge it you know um and fine to have opinions it's fine to have assumptions even that you assume from the most of the people that you've met that are like this you have an assumption it's just when it gets frustrating and i get kind of tie this back to like women and and race and everything uh because i know you have to go where it gets frustrating is where you treat every exceptional data point as an outlier you don't let it change your graph the way that 
people will continuously say women are not funny, no matter how many funny women they've no, seen. No matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, you if, can't change your data. They only <laughs> register the things that confirm their opinion and they don't their register prejudice. every yeah. harmless Muslim that walks past them in the street. They don't register every, you know pleasant and courteous working they only register the wolf whistlers they only register the sluts they only register the angry you know feminists they don't register the calm and and reasoned they just don't change their data points no matter how much well that yeah yeah that's it this is the stance that i have and 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 i'm not going to be challenged on it but here's a really interesting thing. I would like to dive into the science of this because they try and prove the whole women aren't funny thing by scientific evidence. And the human race is changing so quickly yeah. that, you know, all of this, a lot of this data is so irrelevant. So it was, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who said, uh-huh. you know, uh, in his famous thing of like women aren't funny because they don't need to get a mate. They don't need to try and... Uh, you know, and Hitchens uh, was such a good arguer, but he was wrong about everything. Every major yeah, yeah, thing yeah. he came down on, from the war to the like, he just. Uh, and and that's where people take intellect over actual because there's you know there's being life aware and uh, socially smart, and then there's being book smart. Mm. You know, they're they're kind of like quite different. Yeah, there's being a good debater. Yeah, you know, and. Lots of people who just were, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be devil's advocate. I'm going to go on the other side just to see if I can, just to challenge myself to see if I can, can win. Um, but it, it it would be interesting to see kind of like scientifically how much of this holds. But here's, uh, if you go back to like the original hunter gatherers, mm. and this is where we come into the role of women in society, and also about uh, you know. Uh, women's capability to do jobs that are traditionally seen as men. For example, we had some female, uh, we, we had sort of a, a female lines person for mm. a football match. So it was a, a lines woman, if you yeah. like, a lines man, lines woman. And uh, two presenters for, I think they were at Sky TV at the time, one called Richard Keyes, I can't remember the name of the other one. They were caught off camera kind of making lots of sexist remarks about the female presenters. And then the fi- the, the female lines woman, they were like, what? what the fuck is she doing? She doesn't know what she does. She doesn't know the game. She can't be a lineswoman. Women can't be lineswomen. And what I found really interesting is that about that is that if we do want to use science, if we go back to hunter-gatherer tribes, right, uh, men and women had equal billing, yeah. right, in the tribe. They were different, but equal. But equal. Different, but equal. And if so you, men I were... I imagine if you could do the job, you would have been allowed to do the job. Well, here's the thing. Men were stronger... Yeah. And faster, but women were better observers. Yeah. So women would they would hunt together and women would go hunting with the babies on their fronts or their backs or how they you know, or leave them yeah. with other members of the hunter gatherers, you know. But women were better at observing. Now at what point did we say being faster is better. Is better than having being having an amazing ability to observe. So if you boil that down to its very, very basic elements to say that a woman couldn't be a good lineswoman or a woman couldn't be a good comedian when one of the things that she's superior at is observing. Yeah. Observa- most comedy is observational comedy. Yeah. So it's the ability to take in what is around you and convert that into being funny. So on a base kind of level of where we come from and who we are, of course women are going to be excellent stand-ups, probably better than men. Yeah. If you want to use that as a basis for 
you know, um, David Starkey, Ooh, who's a historian. Who's better a... with words as well. Yeah. Like on, on the books at the moment, the way that women are educated or socialised or whatever, we're better with words. We remember right. more words, we use more words. And communicating. And stand-up is so much number, about... by number, but by variety. Right, yeah. And, and stand-up is so much about communicating yeah. and engaging with people. And women are very good social mixers. So it's interesting... David Starkey said, um, he's one of our historians here, he's a bit of an old sexist pig, and uh, he said that women didn't make good historians. And I just thought, women who see everything, hear everything, and anyone that's ever been in a relationship with one will know they remember everything. They remember everything. To, to say we don't make good historians is to, is to not understand who women are, I guess. So let's challenge those motherfuckers and take them down. All right, thank you. Have you got anything coming up that I should plug for you? Um... Where, where are most of your listeners? Are they in? I have most in Australia, some in the UK, some in America. Okay, cool. Well, I'm doing a... I thought I might be coming out to Australia, but I don't think I am now. I don't know when I'm next in Australia, but I'm doing a run at the Soho Theatre, which is uh, in London. So that's from the 25th of February to like the 29th. Yep. So I'm doing dates there. That's my solo show, Optimist. I did that in Adelaide last year and... I did the roadshow out in Melbourne as well, so I did bits of it out there. Um, I'm not sure when I'm out in Australia next. I'm in New York, I think in April. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the best way, if you want to find out where I'm playing or if you want to see me, is to go onto my Twitter, which is at Tiff Stevenson, uh, or even onto my website, www.tiffstevenson.co.uk, and... uh, you can find out all the information there. Join the mailing list. There's also like a free download on there at the moment. I don't know how long it's staying up, but um, it's a headline show that I did here in 2013, I think. So um, you can hear some of my sort of older stuff on there if you're interested in checking it out. Get it. Free comedy. Yes. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>